So, First uh, Timothy. Let's jump in. Uh, as I mentioned the last couple weeks, the first chapter is uh, is concerned with doctrine primarily. Really, it's one long introduction uh, for the letter uh, with that concern for doctrine because it's the foundation of the church in Ephesus and every other church. And so, as we saw in week one, Paul begins with this theologically rich greeting to Timothy uh, who ministers according to it. Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. We spent a lot of time breaking that down. Last week we looked at the, the false teachers and uh, how their message, their gospel is contrary to the introduction to Paul's gospel, to what's consistent with the apostles. And uh, within the first chapter there are three personal appeals. The first one is in verse 3. He urges Timothy to put in order what is out of order. The second one we're going to look at this morning where he is thankful to God for what Christ has done in him and for him. And then next week, we're going to look at the personal appeal he makes to Timothy as shepherd of this congregation in verses 18 through 20. So today, Paul is pouring out his heart to a young pastor who has his hands full. And so as I was reading this again and again and again this week, I thought how often we read Scripture and I don't know if you're like me, but if you're not thinking, you often read in the monotone voice, you know, just word after word after word. You don't really think about the significance of the words. I don't want us to read that, this, that way, this passage that way this morning. This is not some shallow confession. This is Paul who has deep gratitude and deep conviction. And so I was wrestling with this yesterday, and I told Cherie that I have the theological purpose of the text, but I don't have the heart yet. And... Then the Lord, in his providence, shows me how to have a heart for the, the, the text. I get this weird flu that comes on, and I have no option but to depend on him. My brain was so scattered, I couldn't focus. Now I can only think about one thing at a time. Um, and some of you, a couple weeks ago, I had a cold a couple weeks ago and a flu today, and a couple of you were like, that was a great message. You should get sick more often. <laughs> Thanks a lot. But... It is amazing how much God loves me. So, okay, you want to know what it means to be completely dependent on me like Paul was? I will show you. So let's read. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. <clears throat> to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, may we never lose the awe and wonder of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Very co-equal with you. There is no distinction in value or purpose, essence. One holy God. Father, Son, Spirit. We will never be able to wrap our minds around that. But we know it to be true. Our Father in heaven, may your will and your love for your people be evident through the work of your Son. May your Spirit force us to depend on you, draw us to you, open our eyes and our hearts to the truth. There are many here this morning who know you, yet choose to walk around and replace the veil, walking as the world walks. There are some of you who claim, there are some here this morning who claim to see but are still blind. Lord, may the preaching and explaining and applying of your word bring the dead to life and cause those who live to rejoice in Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So our first section in the text, verses 12 through 14, this is one Greek sentence. It has one sentiment of humility and gratefulness with three main points. Uh, and so I thought it would be helpful to put Paul's train of thought up, and it'll be up on the screen, uh, to kind of see, because sometimes when you read Paul, especially in First Timothy, it's not always clear where he's going. So I want you to see what he's doing. First things first, it's I thank Christ for what he has done in me and what he's, what, he, what he's given me. He begins with his thankfulness. And he's so thankful because he received mercy he didn't deserve, verse 12, verse 13. This mercy overflows with grace and faith and love. It's not just mercy at the time of my forgiveness. It's this continual fountain of God's grace for me. And then he points to the source, the trustworthy gospel, that Jesus Christ came to the earth to save sinners. This is the heart and the center of this passage. Right after it, he brings up the mercy again and he talks about the purpose of that mercy. God has shown me mercy in Jesus Christ so that I would be an example of how Christ saves sinners, even the chief of sinners. And why does he do it? He closes with this beautiful doxology for his glory alone because there is none like him. There is no one who can save like him. That's where we're going to be going this morning. And so let's begin to walk through verse 12. I thank him. Paul is thankful. Why is Paul so thankful? Jesus told us that if you've been forgiven much, you will be grateful for much. And also, when much is expected of you, and much is required of you, and much fruit comes out of your, your ministry, think about Paul's impact. Imagine being able to traverse the known world at the time, be able to teach and influence all of the early churches, and see convert after convert, and to raise up men like Timothy and Titus and put them in churches. Him, the blasphemer, the murderer. He's so thankful because it doesn't make any sense. But here is his source. I thank him who has given me strength. 
He didn't start on his own merit. He's not going to continue in his own merit. And every minister of the gospel who tries to continue or start in their own strength will fail. Guaranteed. And you're a fool if you think that you have enough within you to muster up something to present before God. Paul is the greatest theologian outside of Christ the world has ever seen. And all glory goes to the one who gives him strength. He rests nothing in himself or his, or his own understanding. And he's overwhelmed when he says, Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm so thankful to him. He's given me strength because he judged me. Me, faithful. He considered me trustworthy. I wouldn't trust me with anything. He entrusted me with the gospel, with his sheep. And trust me? I have this thought often. Who am I to open the word? Who am I to preach? Who am I to counsel? Who am I a sinner? Think about that. God uses wretches like us, chief among sinners, as his ministers of reconciliation to a lost and dying world. Who would do that? We would never do that. We wouldn't... If we were God, we wouldn't want us. We wouldn't use us. God is such a merciful God. He strengthens me. He considered me faithful. And he appoints me to his service. I can't take credit for anything. Notice Paul's language here. I thank him. I thank Christ. He judged me. He appointed me to his service. How much of Paul is in this? Only what the Lord uses. How many in the modern church love to take credit, love to hear their own accolades and read their own headlines? Paul goes back to Christ, back to Christ, back to Christ. And so this formula of a thankful, strengthened, faithful servant of Christ is a fantastic description of a minister of the gospel. And every believer, should there be any other kind? Should there be anything short of a thankful, strengthened, faithful servant of Christ? And in case you are tempted to think Paul's special, and in, in case you're tempted to give him any credit, Paul wants God to get all the glory. Remember, Timothy's going to read this, and the congregation in Ephesus is going to read this. Here goes Paul again. Didn't he forget who he was? No, he did not forget who he was. He knew exactly who he was. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. What a resume. Paul, what qualifies you for Christian service? Well, I murdered Christians. I persecuted them. I hated them with all of my guts. But Jesus Christ called me and appointed me to his service. As I was thinking about this week, what is my resume? Greedy, prideful, drunkard, reveler, reviler, sexually immoral. Every one of us our resume is not good. We would not hire us to be Christian. 
Paul sets a great example. And if you're new to Paul, or you're new to the gospel, and you think Paul's exaggerating, I want to show you in Acts. Let's turn to Acts. Uh, we're going to begin in chapter 7. We're going to look at some passages in 7, 8, and 9. I want to paint a picture. One of the greatest sermons in the New Testament is preached by Stephen. And of course, you preach a Christ-centered sermon, everyone cheers and loves you, right? No. Verse 54 of Acts chapter 7. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. Stephen looks up into heaven, sees Jesus in his glory at the right hand of God. Verse 57, they cry out with a loud voice, and they stop their ears, and they rush together at him. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. This is not a pleasant ordeal. This is a crowd with rocks who pummel him until he bleeds and becomes disfigures and dies. It is a slow, agonizing, painful death. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. His Hebrew name, Saul. His Greek name, Paul. What was his role in this? Here, hold my beer. I'm going to go kill this Christian. And he gladly was a participator. He took all their, their coats, and as they were stoning Stephen, Stephen cries out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he said these things and fell asleep. But we're not done with Paul yet. And Saul, Saul did not have a name change, by the way. Most, uh, most of them had two names, a Hebrew name and a Greek name. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entered house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Skip over to chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and he asked for letters to the synagogue at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, that is, followers of Christ, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He was not a passive participant. He sought out means to persecute and imprison Christians. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying from heaven, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What's the voice he hears? A voice from heaven. He says, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. Was he persecuting Jesus? No, he was persecuting Christians. But if you're united with Christ, if you're one in him, what they do to his saints, so Ananias says in a moment, they do to Christ. Imagine the weight when Paul hears from heaven, you have been persecuting me, the Lord of glory. But he tells him, rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. A vision goes to this man, Ananias. One more account. 
just to put the, the, the final nail in the case here, verse 13. But Ananias answered when he told that this man Saul is, is going to come and uh, you're going to lay hands on him. He says, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. How much does Christ Jesus love his own? When you persecute his own, it's like you persecute him. When you go after, if you are his, and someone throws you in prison or kills you, it is a, an attack on Jesus Christ himself because he is so closely associated with you. When his saints are attacked, he is attacked. And Ananias goes on to say, And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord Jesus said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul wore his sufferings for Christ as a badge of honor. To Paul... I could suffer for the rest of my life and it would never equal the grace that God has given me, the mercy that I've been shown. So when the Lord uses someone like Paul, who gets the glory? He doesn't use the ruddy, handsome Saul of the Old Testament. He uses little David. He doesn't use the big, strong hunter and Esau. He uses the liar and Jacob. He doesn't use great warriors to build his church. He uses 12 fishermen knuckleheads so that he gets the glory. And this is Paul's point. Who would choose me? Who would use me? And so I think one of the greatest problems in the church and the ops, the obstacles to the gospel today is that we think too little of sin. Paul is very aware of his sin. He knows how great a sinner he is. He knows how much grace he needs. How many times have you talked to people or have I talked to people or maybe you've even said these words, well, I'm not Hitler. I'm, I'm not Paul. I haven't killed anybody. I'm not that bad. I, I'm only slightly bad, so I only slightly need mercy. You think way too little about sin and way too high of yourself. The other problem with the world today is that we think too little of God. Well, he's a pretty good guy. God should let him in, right? Shouldn't God let him into heaven? Shouldn't God let him into his kingdom? I've heard this from some of you in this room. He's a nice guy. I don't know how he couldn't be a Christian. There are, hell is filled with nice people. Hell is filled with good, moral people who say, I'm good enough on my own and I don't need Jesus Christ. You know what the prerequisite is for the kingdom of God? I am a murderer, a reviler, a swindler. I have nothing to offer on my own. And throw my face on the ground before the one who died for my sins. Don't think too little of God. He is more holy and more righteous than you could ever imagine. He doesn't think lightly about sin, so much so, he will never let one of your sins go unpunished. They either remain on you 
or they are placed upon Christ. This is why Paul is so thankful. He knows how many sins he has. And when you read Romans 7, he keeps adding up the ticker every day, as do we all. But he received mercy. This is passive in the original language, meaning he did not do anything to receive mercy. The mercy is done to him. God has mercy on whom he will have mercy. And he kind of opens up his merciful plan in Romans 11. Romans 11 is, Romans, the book of Romans is, is all about the mercy of God. But Romans 11, as he finishes in chapter 10 and chapter 11, trying to explain the mystery of, well, why first the Jews <coughs> and then the Gentiles? Look at how Paul explains this. Romans 11, verse 30. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now received mercy, speaking to Gentiles here, because of their disobedience, speaking about Jews, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. This is God's plan of redemption. To show, to make his glory known, I will take wretched sinners. I will place my mercy on them. And for a time, Israel will not be included. Israel will run off, but there'll be a remnant. And the Gentiles come in, and then the Israelites will come in again. And as soon as he says this, he breaks into this doxology. I don't have it on the screen, but he says, oh, the depths and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. And he goes on and on and on. The first portion of the book, the indicative portion where Paul's gospel explanation is laid out, ends in doxology. And then his practical portion in verse 1 of chapter 12 I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Here's the connection. Eleven chapters of the mercy of God toward Jew and Gentile. Here's what you do with it. There is nothing in the Christian life that we do apart from the knowledge of God's mercy toward our sin. Therefore, we've been given a ministry, 2 Corinthians 4, 1. 2 Corinthians 4.1, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. If he has poured out his mercy for you for your sins, what do you have to be discouraged about? He has sealed your eternity in the blood of Christ. This is our ministry, brothers and sisters. If you are in Christ Jesus, this is your identity. This is your calling. Ministers according to the mercies of God. And Paul, he receives this mercy, but why Paul receiving this, this mercy? Back in 1 Timothy, he says he acted ignorantly in unbelief. He's claiming ignorance. Paul explains this a little bit in Romans 10, a little bit before Romans 11 where he again is pouring out his heart for his kinsmen according to the flesh. Romans 10 says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved, talking about Israel according to the flesh. For I bear them witness that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And I think he's describing himself here. 
For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Paul is recounting his previous state. Because for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. There is a pity and a compassion from God for those who act in ignorance. And when they're shown their own wickedness, they repent versus the ones who act willfully. There's a difference. These come up in John chapter 9. In John chapter 9, Jesus heals a blind boy. And, of course, the natives are restless. They are not happy that he's been healed. And this man believes, and the Pharisees get upset. But notice what Jesus says to them. John 9, 39. Jesus says, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. See what Jesus is saying here? He's saying, yeah, I see. Of course I'm good. I'm right with God. You're blind. He uses a blind man to teach a theological truth. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? They indicted themselves right there. Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. The person who most to be pitied is the one who hears the gospel and says no thanks. The one who says, yeah, I've got it all figured out. I'm the one with the eyes. You've got nothing to offer me. Your guilt remains on you. Now you are without excuse. And so Paul receives this grace, this mercy, because he doesn't defiantly say, I see. He repents and recognizes his need for mercy. And so when he receives this mercy from verse 13, verse 14, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This overflowing is a super abundance of unmerited favor coming out of God's forgiving mercy. You ever started pouring a cup of coffee or a glass of water and you start pouring it, you pour it into your water jug or whatever, and you, and, you, and you get distracted. You look over here, something happens, you're watching TV, and you turn around, and the water's just bubbling over the top. And you're like, oh, man, you, you, you pull it back, you made a mess all over your, your counter. That is the grace that Paul is describing. That the grace that is poured in is filled to the top of the cup, and it is overflowing. As David said, my cup runs over. This cup is full, yet it keeps receiving more grace and more grace. This is what Paul recognized. When God has mercy and forgives our sins in a legal sense, he doesn't leave us there. His grace he pours out on us, on those he forgives. John 1.16. He pours out his grace and he doesn't stop. John 1.16. For from his fullness we all received grace upon grace. How often do you just stop and take comfort in that? Man, I sinned again. And you beat yourself up. And you walk around with the burden of your own shortcomings. How often do you just stop and say, man, Christ has given me grace upon grace upon grace, and my cup runs over. I can try to pour it out. I can spill it on the floor. 
but it is God who gives grace and he doesn't stop. We love the Reformation sola, sola gratia, by grace alone. Nothing we have done or, or merited, God's richest grace poured out through Christ's merciful work on the cross to those he's forgiven. And this grace is never alone. You are saved by grace alone, but you are not given a grace that remains alone. Look at here. And this grace of our Lord overflowed for me from the faith and love, or excuse me, with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This grace that wells up in our heart, it produces faith. Our faith grows. Our love grows. He pours into us and our cup runs over. And what overflows out of this cup? Faith in our Savior who died for us. Love for our Lord who sent his Son on our behalf. Love for his bride. Again, it's what Paul says in verse, said in verse 5. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. If you are dying, someone gives you a new heart. We have someone in the congregation who was given a new heart recently. How thankful are you? If you're about to get foreclosed on and someone buys out your mortgage, how thankful are you? If you're riddled with, with debt and someone pays it off, how thankful are you? If someone erases every mistake you've ever made from the mind of every person you've ever met, how thankful are you? It's a lot. What about when someone does all of that for eternity? How thankful are you? How grateful are you to have overflowing grace pays your penalty supplies your needs, and takes you on into eternity. God transformed this hateful, raging murderer. Saul the persecutor. To be a man who's overflowing with love and faith because of God's grace. Who else could do that? Have you experienced that? Do you know that to be true for you? Do you know the wicked state of your heart? Do you know that you were dead in your trespasses and sins? And now you've received the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ for your salvation. Does your heart overflow with faith and trust in him and love for him? Have you been brought from the caterpillar, the slug-looking creature that drags its belly across the ground and is ugly and slimy to a butterfly that is beautiful and soars because you've been given new life? You've been made a new creature. If you have, shouldn't we respond the way Paul does? That's why he says, this saying is trustworthy. Here's the center of the passage. He sandwiches mercy on both sides, not to miss the source of the mercy. Don't forget, I just told you about Christ. I'm going to tell you again. 
in a very simple gospel formula in verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Let's break this down on this trustworthy saying. We don't have time to get into this, but the saying is trustworthy is used four times only in the pastoral epistles for Paul to show what is most important for these young pastors. And so uh, I encourage you to check the cross-references. But as we get to the, the center of this passage, Paul's foundation goes back again to the gospel. And let's break this down. The saying is trust, trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world. Who is Christ Jesus? Remember verse 1 and 2. Co-equal with God. Spoken of synonymously with God. Equal with the Father. Eternally God comes into the world. He's incarnate. He's man. God becomes man. Why? Why does the eternal God take on humanity and come to earth? Why would he ever do that? To save sinners. Why did Jesus have to come? Because we're that bad. You are that bad. Jesus had to come and die because your sin is so detestable to God. Jesus had to lay down his life because you are dead in your trespasses and sins without him. He came for sinners. He came for sinners like us. This is the message of Paul's ministry. This is the mercy that Paul received. This is the grace that he speaks about. Jesus says in Luke 5, actually it's in all the synoptics. He didn't come for the righteous, but for sinners. Jesus answered them. This is Luke 5, 31 and 32. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Going back to those who say, I see. If you're, if you're healthy, you don't need a doctor. If you think too little of sin, you don't need a savior. You're good on your own, and Christ doesn't need you. He didn't come for those who are all good on their own. He came for sinners. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. He goes on to say, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. If you read this for the first time, it doesn't make sense. Well, well isn't it the righteous who go to heaven? No. It's the sinners who know that they are sinners, who belong to the kingdom of the true and living God. It's those who are righteous in their own eyes who are still trying to stand on their own works in hell today. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of which I am the foremost. We must see ourselves like that. We must see ourselves as needing a savior. We must see ourselves as sinners. If you think too little of sin or too little of God, you have no need for Jesus Christ, and that's the problem in many modern churches today. That's the problem in many modern gospels. They minimize sin. They minimize God. If sin was not that big a deal, trust me, Jesus would have been very comfortable in the throne of glory and would not have needed to take on flesh and walk on earth. It's that drastic. This is the true doctrine that refutes the false man-centered gospel. Blessed are the poor in spirit who know it. 
for theirs is the kingdom of God. Paul is so grateful. Verse 16, he brings up mercy again, him being the chief of sinners again. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who believe in him for eternal life. Let's spend a moment in there. For this reason, Paul is an example to show Christ's grace towards sinners. If he can save that guy, to show Christ's perfect patience. Don't skip over that. We could never be that patient. We get upset when there's three cars in front of us in the drive-thru. Don't tell me I'm the only one. We're not patient with ourselves. We're not patient with others. How often have you angrily looked at the microwave because the seconds are not counting down fast enough? But his patience is perfect. Praise God, his patience is perfect. He lets us continue in our sin until his perfect timing. How impatient would we be with ourselves and others? And this is an example. Why does Paul give his testimony so often? Why do we give testimonies here? Because we need to be reminded over and over and over again that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. This word example here, it means a sketch or an impression of an artist. It's like drawing, drawing a, a stencil, an outline. Paul's life is a stencil, an outline for the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. Taking sinners and turning them into saints. Matteo mentioned to me yesterday of a uh, story that Spurgeon tells. Charles Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers who just thinks in pastoral analogies. Um, but he talks about us and our sin as a sick, angry, hopeless dog. They've been living on the street. They have no food there. They're angry at the world. This is Paul. He is barking at everyone who would stick the hand out. He's scrounging for table scraps. He's just mad. And he's hobbling through life miserable until someone binds him up, feeds him and loves him, even after he bites the hand a few times. And he is so thankful and so grateful that he goes out to all the other dogs who are in the street and said, I know where someone will feed you and heal you and bind you up. One of my favorite gospel phrases has been attributed to many, but I'm just one beggar telling other beggars where to find bread. This is the gospel. We are lost and destitute. We are beggars, but I've got the bread of life. I've got living waters that you could drink. And if the Lord can be patient toward Paul the persecutor, he can be patient with us. Praise God for that. So when Paul says here that he might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life, do you believe in Jesus Christ for eternal life? Do you really do you put your trust in him? Do you have nowhere else to go? Because if you do, he's patient with you. 
because we need it. Praise God for that. Amen. Last verse here, verse 17. Sometimes if you read Paul, you're like, man, there's two or three benedictions in this letter. What's he doing? Think about this. Paul is so overcome with the mercy that he's received. He is so (coughs) undone with the gospel. He breaks out in an impromptu doxology. We say this on Wednesday night. We say this often. If your theology doesn't lead to doxology, your theology is wrong. If your doctrine about God does not lead you to praise God, you're doing something wrong. Paul stops in the middle of talking about how great his sin is, how great the mercy of God is, and says to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor, glory, forever and ever, amen. Amen. And now on to you, Timothy. How many times do you just stop and praise God? How many times do you just take a step? Stop talking, stop thinking, stop doing, and just praise God for the mercy you've received. Paul does. What a beautiful example. I'm going to break this down quickly. There's such a strong doxology. That's why we opened our service with immortal, invisible, God-only wise. He is the king of the ages. Christ rules and reigns right now. He is the king of this age and the age to come. There is no one higher. There is no one who competes for his throne. He is the immortal one, literally without death. You cannot kill him. He will not be held by death. He is risen. He will never die again. The king of the ages, the immortal one, the invisible one. Paul tells us in Colossians, he's the image of the invisible God. Peter tells us that though you have not seen him with your eyes, you know him and love him in faith. None of us has ever seen Christ face to face. But if he has died for your sins, it is like he is sitting right next to you. And one day you will see him face to face. And that is the throne that Paul looks up to when he recounts the mercy he's been given for his sins. This Jesus, the king of the ages, the immortal, the invisible, he's the only God. He is fully God. He is fully man. There is no other. He is the name above every name. A name that deserves all honor and glory and power and praise. So much so he uh, recounts these words at the very end of the letter. If you look at chapter 16, he says almost the same thing. Halfway through verse 15 talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So I want to take a moment before I get to my conclusion and stop and praise God. I've been meditating on this Sovereign Grace hymn uh, that comes from an older hymn. It'll be on the screen. I want you to think about these words. I hope, Christian, that this brings you comfort. I will glory in my Redeemer, whose priceless blood has ransomed me. 
Mine was the sin that drove the bitter nails and hung him on that judgment tree. I will glory in my Redeemer who crushed the power of sin and death, my only Savior before a holy judge, the Lamb who is my righteousness. I will glory in my Redeemer, my life he bought, my life he owns. I have no longings for another. I am satisfied in him alone. I will glory in my Redeemer, his faithfulness, my standing place. Though foes are mighty and rush upon me, my feet are firm, held by his grace. The third verse is beautiful too. I hope you use great hymns and great prayers and scripture texts to just stop and think about the grace that you have been given. If you have indeed been redeemed, that is your glory, and we praise him for it. So I want to leave with uh, a practical piece of advice and then a summary. Practical piece of advice from the brilliant Puritan Thomas Watson. He says this, A Christian should keep two books always before him, one in which he writes his sins that he may be made humble. Amen. The other in which he writes his mercies that he may be kept thankful. For the rest of our days, do not think lightly about your sin, but don't you dare think lightly about the mercy of God. So we can summarize what we're talking about this morning here. Christian ministry can simply be summed up in laboring in God's mercy towards sinners. That's what we do. Our God is merciful, he saves sinners, and he's brought us into that work. That's Christian ministry. Once those sinners are saved by that merciful work of Christ and they're brought in, they need the strength of Christ. They need the grace of Christ to stand firm in the faith. They need the love for their redeeming Lord and one another. This is why every week we say we are a people who tell. Everything must begin with teaching truth. When you open the scriptures, what is true that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners? If you open the scriptures, teach truth, you will exalt Christ because ultimately everything finds their yes and amen in him. When you begin with the truth and Christ is exalted, hopefully your hearts are stirred to love the Lord this morning and throughout the week. We stand on truth. We exalt Christ. Our hearts are stirred with affection toward the Lord and gratefulness and thanksgiving like Paul's. Then, those who are rooted in truth, Christ rightly on the throne, not you, your heart directed to him, then you can lead one another in the spirit. Like so many people try to get to the last step. Oh, I just want to be the teacher, the leader, it breaks my heart how many times I talk to Christians who think that they can be teachers and leaders, and there's no love for the Lord. They don't read his word. They don't fellowship with his people. I was around a few of those guys yesterday, and it's just frustrating. Guy who wants to teach, he's like, yeah, I haven't read the Bible in a few weeks. Like, what are you doing? Anyways. But if you're hearing this for the first time, this may sound too simple. Wait a second. Isn't there something I do? Where's my gold star? What credit do I bring to this? And here's where legalism happens. Here's where all these other stumbling blocks happen is when we miss the simple truth of the gospel that Jesus Christ saves sinners. For those who believe in him, we muddy the water. We add our own things to it. 
we create different gospels because I must bring something to the table. It is Jesus Christ and him alone. Through God's grace alone, the only thing you bring to the table is you put your faith in him alone. And he will hold you in his mighty right hand for eternity. So, if you're doing well this morning, you need to be reminded of God's mercy. If you're struggling this morning, you need to be reminded of God's mercy. And if you have not put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the merciful, today is the day of salvation. You need to know his mercy. For he is the king of the ages. He is the immortal. He is the invisible. He is the only God who receives honor and power and glory forever and ever. And he is merciful. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you this morning. You are great and awesome in all of your ways. Your steadfast, loving kindness never ceases. Your mercy is new every morning. Those of us here this morning who walk with you, who are in you, we know this grace. We know this joy. Lord, I know there are some in here this morning who don't know you and don't know this, and I pray that your spirit convict them of sin and reveal them of their need for you, that they would cry out for your mercy, they would take hold of your grace through faith, that they might have everlasting life in Christ. And for those of us who have, may we continue in him, starting in the spirit and continuing in the spirit, resting in the mercy of Christ Jesus towards sinners, like our brother Paul, and every brother and sister who has gone before us or will come after us. It is his name we praise. Amen.